Confession of Faith from the Shorter Catechism, 29 to 31. I'll ask the question. We can respond in unison with the answer. Question 29. How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by His Holy Spirit. How doth the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. In the Word of God, our Old Testament text is Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 38. Ezekiel 36, starting verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields, so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake, do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God. On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. 
Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days. So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Wonderful words there about the sovereign grace of God sending His Spirit, giving the Spirit to His people, giving His people new life um, by that Spirit and bringing them back into the promised land from their exile. Let's turn now to John 6. This is our sermon text. Uh, Especially verse 44 we'll be focusing on tonight, but the whole section here is good for the context. John uh, John chapter 6, verses 41 through 51. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. O Lord, we pray you make your word a swift word passing from the ear to the heart and from the heart to the lip in conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Let your word pierce us to the core and transform us, make us like Christ, and produce the fruit of holiness and righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've considered together, as we've looked at the, uh, the, the, the recent section of the Catechism, the person and work of Christ. We've been looking at who Christ is as our Savior, uh, the, the offices He fulfills, uh, His nature as the God-man, what, what, how He is our mediator as both God and man, how He's the only Savior we have and the only Savior that we need. Uh, we've, we've looked at that together. But, but once we've considered that, there's another piece that's all important for us to, to understand, and that is how does what Christ did, right, his person, his work, how does that come to apply to me? Right? He, he, he's this glorious Savior. He's all-sufficient Savior. But how do I, how do I get that? Right? How, how does that connect with my life? He came, he died on a cross a long time ago. How, how, he rose from the dead a long time ago. 
how does that apply to me? How does that change me? How does that impact me? What does that do to me? And, and how, how can I get this Christ? You can think of it kind of like the electric grid, right? There's all this energy and power in the electric grid, but if you don't get your house connected to it, it doesn't do you any good. How do we get connected to Christ? Calvin takes up this question in his institutes, and he makes this most crucial point that if uh, we don't have union with Christ, right? A living relationship, a vital union with Christ by faith. If we don't have that, nothing that Christ did does us any good whatsoever. He says this, he writes this, he says, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. It is true that we obtain this by faith. So Calvin says, if you don't have union with Christ, you don't have salvation from Christ. And this is exactly what we just read in the Shorter Catechism. These questions and answers we just read through, they teach us the same thing, that we must have this union with Christ if we're going to receive any of the benefits of his salvation. We saw this question and answer 30. The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Answer 31 says this, Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the Gospel. Right Before the Westminster divines can get around to talking about the benefits of salvation that we receive, Justification, adoption, sanctification, glory, all that. First, they need to tell us how we get these things, and it is found in Christ. Right? Um, uh, what, what we're seeing here in Calvin, in the, the, the Catechism, and, and as we're going to see in Scripture, is that we don't enjoy a single benefit of salvation apart from Christ. The, the, the gifts that God gives us in our salvation aren't separable from Christ. It's not like he wraps up the package and sends it in the mail. Here's your justification, right? No, justification is found in Christ and only in union with Christ, only in relationship with Christ are we justified. These aren't um, uh, the aspects of our salvation, the benefits of our salvation are not, are not abstract concepts or, 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 or commodities. They're in Christ and they're ours in Christ. He doesn't so much give us salvation as He is our salvation. He is our justification. He is our adoption. He is our sanctification. All the riches of the gospel cannot be separated from His person. They are found in Christ. And so it is to Christ Himself we must go. It is in Christ we need to rest. In Christ we need to trust. Personally, the living Christ. We must embrace him by faith, as the Catechism puts it. This is what Calvin teaches. This is what the Shorter Catechism teaches. But of course, none of that matters if it's not what Scripture teaches. So let's look at Scripture um, 
This is the clear teaching of Scripture. Uh, it's all over the New Testament. It's, it's kind of latent. It's, it's, it's um, implied often throughout the Old Testament as well. Uh, but it comes into crystal clarity in the New Testament. One text that draws this out for us is John 6, 44, uh, which we read. And it bears out this same point. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That verse wonderfully captures uh, kind of the main points of what the catechism is articulating here. right? And, and it wonderfully answers the question, how does a sinner find salvation? It's in union with Christ. How do we come to Christ? By the effective call of God to bring us to Christ Himself. So two headings tonight, two things we're going to look at in these verses. Um, these are... Jesus' answer to the question, how does a sinner get salvation? Uh, the, the first thing is the saving faith comes only as a result of the effective call of the Father. Saving faith comes to us only as a result of the effective call of the Father. Look with me if you have it open. Uh, verse 44, John 6 where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We must be drawn by the Father. This is the first thing we see, right? The Father must draw sinners. The Father must work faith in them. And the Father must draw them to Christ. As Jesus speaks, to, he knows his audience. He knows us as well. He knows sinful man. He knows how depraved man is. And, um, and his words reveal to us just how completely incapable of choosing Christ we are. Jesus does not say here, uh, no one can come to me uh, unless, unless they first believe in me. No one can come to me unless they, 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 they reason it through with their capable mind and decide that I am trustworthy. Now, he knows our sin. He knows that in ourselves we're never going to choose Christ. We're never going to come to him because of our sin which so blinds us and so deadens us. We kick against this doctrine. It's not a popular doctrine, is it? Right? That, that I am utterly dead in sin and cannot choose Christ on my own. Surely I had something to do with this. But Christ sets it so clearly. We don't, we don't have... Right, right, our wills have been enslaved to sin. We cannot choose Him. Romans 8, verse 8 puts it, Bluntly, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Sinners can't come to Christ. They can't. You and I couldn't. Ephesians 2. Paul says we were dead in sin. Right? Ephesians 2, 2. Dead in our trespasses and sins. What is it to be dead? It is to be utterly unresponsive. Right? The dead don't respond to anything, don't will or choose anything. They have no capability of doing so. And that's the picture Paul uses for our spiritual state. We, we have no spiritual heartbeat when we're sinners apart from Christ. We have, we have, we have no ability to, to, for any spiritual response whatsoever apart from the work of God in us. We're, we're, remember that uh, vision of Ezekiel, right? The valley of dry bones. That's, that's what sinners are like spiritually apart from the grace of God. So, so Jesus is telling, he understands this. So he says, he says to us that nothing but the sovereign power of the Creator Himself can bring life where there is death, can bring spiritual life where there is, where there was spiritual death before. 
only God can make sinners come to Christ. Only the Word of God, right? That Word of God, which God, by the power of His Word, brought forth the creation, everything out of nothing. Now He speaks a word for the new creation. It's the same power, same power you need, right? The power of His omnipotent Word. We didn't choose Christ. We didn't choose Him in the least. We didn't have any inclination towards Him. God chose us. We weren't good candidates. He chose us. We didn't muster up the faith. He came into our spiritually dead hearts and drew us to His Son. He didn't just make us able to believe. He didn't just remove the obstacles. He made us spiritually alive. This is what the divines here call the effectual call. Right, the word effectual just means effective. When God calls, sinners respond. Like Jesus, right, at the tomb of Lazarus, he calls and Lazarus comes to life. So we come to spiritual life at the call of God. Loved ones, this is how we came to faith in Christ. Every single one of us, whether we realize it or not, Jesus tells us if we're, if we're trusting in Christ, if we've come to him, it's because God called us by name and drew us to himself. We weren't good candidates, as I said. It wasn't anything in our upbringing or our personality or, or, or our social position or our intellectual capability or any tendency to do the right thing and be a good person. No, it's all the sovereign grace of God. We are Christians despite ourselves, not because of ourselves. How did God do this? Jesus simply says the Father draws, uh, draws those he wills to himself. He doesn't go into details here on the manner that God does this, but we do see over in Romans 8, verses 9 through 11, uh, a, a bit of, of how God does this. And Paul describes it there in Romans 8, 9 through 11, as the work of the Spirit of God who does this. It is the Spirit who comes and, and makes this call effective to sinners. Romans 8, 9 through 11, Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Among other things there, Paul is saying, it's the Spirit who gives you life. It's the Spirit who unites you to Christ. The Spirit of Christ who comes in to your heart and makes God's call on you effectual. Another text here to, to, to demonstrate this, 1 Corinthians 2.10. Paul writes, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. See, the work of the Spirit is just as essential to our salvation as the work of the Son. We need the Spirit's work just as much as we need the Son's work to be redeemed, to be saved, because it's the Spirit who affects this call and unites us to Christ and so applies to us the salvation Christ accomplished. But there's another thing to bring out here, and the Shorter Catechism itself doesn't actually highlight this point. Jesus does. Um, and that is that it is, yes, the work of the Spirit to accomplish this call, but it is the Father especially that Jesus identifies here as the one doing the calling. This is important for us to see that, that it's the Father who calls. 
people to Christ. It's the Father who draws His elect to Christ. Yes, He does it by His Spirit, but, but the Father is the one who initiates it. Jesus emphasizes this here in uh, John 6, 44. Um, the shorter catechism doesn't touch on it in these questions, but the larger catechism, written at the same time by the same guys there, um, does bring this out quite well, quite wonderfully. Larger catechism, question 67, asks, what's effectual calling? Listen to the answer. Effectual calling is the work of God's almighty power and grace whereby out of His free and special love to His elect, and from nothing in them moving Him to it, He doth in His accepted time invite and draw them to Jesus Christ by His Word and Spirit, savingly enlightening their minds, renewing and powerfully determining their wills, so as they, although in themselves dead in sin, are hereby made willing and able freely to answer His call and to accept and embrace the grace offered and conveyed therein. So it's the Father who calls. The call comes by His Word, by His Spirit, but it's God the Father issuing the call out of His free and special love, as the larger catechism has it. One One of the worst distortions of Christian truth is that the Father is harsh and demanding, while the Son is the one who's gracious and loving and gentle with sinners. That is that the father is uh, the father is distant, cold, removed, and unloving towards sinners, not not full of compassion for them. That that, that Jesus came because he took pity on us, he loved us, and he he decided to, to to take this on himself, to humble himself and save us. Right? He's satisfying the father's wrath, and so we get this idea that that um, he's sort of twisting God's arm. That, that it's only because Jesus paid the price that God is sort of begrudgingly willing to forgive sinners and let them into his kingdom. But just, just barely willing to do so. That, that uh, perhaps God didn't love us until we'd been cleansed of our sin and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because we, we do teach that, right? That this, this part of it, that... Um, that we're not acceptable in God's sight and until we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's absolutely true. He can't welcome us home to Himself apart from the righteousness of Christ. But He loved us. And that's why He sent His Son. He loved us in our sin. This, this twisting of the doctrine of, um, or this complete, this complete uh, misunderstanding of the, the, this doctrine is a, is a satanic lie. We see all over the Bible and all over the New Testament that it's the Father especially who loves us. If any member of the Trinity has love for sinners highlighted, it's the Father. We read this in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's the love of God driving everything. We see this in uh, the uh, Romans 5.8. God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 13.14. Wonderful benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's the love of the Father that the New Testament highlights over and over and over, and the love of the Father for us while we're still in our sins. While we're filthy rebels without anything to draw His love to us, He loves us all, His elect. 
And this love of, this love of God, uh, which Jesus is drawing our attention to here, is not an abstract thing or a general thing as a you know, love for his, his, his people, but it is a specific thing. Jesus is speaking in very specific and individual terms, isn't he? No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. So the Father sets his love on sinners. He sets his love on his elect, but those are specific people, right? He sets his love on you. He knows your name. He knows who you are. He knows your upbringing, your history, your idiosyncrasies, all of it. And he sets his love on you. The Father does. And there can be no doubt about it. Right? He's, he's shown us, he's demonstrated for us his love in sending Christ to prove to us, to demonstrate to us just how much he loves us. This is the only reason we're here. It's the only reason we're here in this church, hearing his word. It's because of his love and his choice and his call on you. This is our effectual calling. The work of God out of his love for you, calling you by his word and spirit to come, giving you life, giving you the ability to come to Christ. This is, this is effectual calling. Without it, we would never have believed. That's our first thing. Second thing to look at tonight is where God calls us to, or better, who God calls us to. God calls us effectively, gives us this, this faith, but what's the faith in? It's in Christ. That's our second thing tonight. Saving faith embraces Jesus Christ. Saving faith embraces Jesus Christ. As, as Jesus speaks in verse 44, he draws all the attention He points to the Father's work to do this, but he draws the attention to himself. He's doing that throughout this passage. He's identifying himself as the sum and substance of salvation. He says in verse 44, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus is putting himself at the center. He's saying, I am the gospel. I am your salvation. He does this throughout the passage. Uh, uh, He says it in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. He says it in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. What does Jesus do over and over in this text? Does he point to salvation as a commodity or a thing that you can receive apart from him? Does he, is eternal life something he simply gives? No, it's something he is and that you have when you are united to him. Just like he does in John 11. What's he say to Mary and Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. Or as he says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He draws all the attention to himself, claiming that he himself is our salvation, he himself is the gospel, and that it's only in having that union with him that we are saved. He's, he's doing what God does also in the Old Testament. God himself in the Old Testament reminds his people many times, I am your salvation. Right? God is their savior. He's the one who saves you. But he himself also is Israel's salvation. Isaiah 12, verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. 
I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This was the confession of faith for Old Testament saints. Yahweh, the Lord, He's my salvation. Uh, He is the sum and substance of the covenant. He doesn't simply give me salvation. He is it. He is salvation. And Jesus is saying that same thing. I am eternal life. I am your salvation. And so, um, what this means for us is that every single benefit of the gospel, every benefit of salvation, every aspect of it is in Christ, right? Grace is not a substance he gives us. It's Christ himself. It's that relationship with Christ himself. Our justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, glorification, all of it, the whole package. They aren't things that Jesus, right, as we said, buys it and then gives it to you. No, they're things that are found in Him, and we have them when we have union with Him. They're like um, it's like the sap that flows from the tree trunk into the branch, right? The only way you have that is if you're connected with the tree, the, and that's the image Jesus gives us in John 15. He says, "I am the vine; you are the branches." Right. So if you want the sap in, that's there, you have to be united with Him. That's the only way to have it. We must be in Christ. We, mean, we must have our souls grafted into Christ like a branch into a tree and have the sap of His life coursing through us if we're going to enjoy any of the benefits of salvation. Loved ones, it is, um, it is really important for us to understand this. It's dangerous to misunderstand this. There's been a tendency in the church at times to lose sight of how all the benefits of our salvation are wrapped up in Christ and found only in Christ. Um, perhaps you've heard of, of what's called the golden chain of salvation, for example, in um, Romans 8.30. Right? This idea that Paul presents our salvation in Romans 8.30 as this, this chain of events that happens. And there's, there's something to that, that, that one uh, what will, will always follow the other, that once God begins his work saving someone, he's going to finish it. But there's no chain present when Paul speaks in Romans 8.30. He doesn't make that... Uh, that, that uh, metaphor there. Uh, right. he, he's emphasizing that God will finish what he started, his promise, his purpose, that he will complete that. But, but Paul doesn't think about the aspects of our salvation as distinct things that are linked to each other. He thinks of them as things that are found in Jesus Christ. And as soon as we start to abstract the, these elements of our salvation from who Christ is and his person, we begin to make grace a commodity. And this, this is the error of Roman Catholicism, for instance. Right? Grace is like a substance that can, that, can be, that can be given and shared and traded and rather than something that's found only in union with Jesus Christ. And if we do that, we lose the very heart of Christianity, which is the essence of, of our religion, is this covenant relationship with God that we have. And if we, if we also, if we, another error that's, that's possible here is that if we start to separate these benefits from Christ, right, um, we can start to pick and choose among them. I'll take justification. I'll leave sanctification. No thank you. Right, I'll, I'll take the grace of God to count me righteous, but then I'm going to go live how I please. But if you are coming to Christ, if all these things are found in Christ, then you can't take one and leave the other. You've been united to the whole Christ. Not half a Christ. You have the whole Christ. You either live in union with Him or you don't. And if you do, you have all the benefits. If you don't, you have none. We have union with a whole Christ and a whole salvation. 
So, loved ones, this is why in John 6 and throughout the New Testament, the call to have faith is a call to trust in Christ, embrace Christ, take hold of Christ. We do this by faith. John uh, uh, 6.47 says, Jesus says, He who believes in me has everlasting life. Faith is the instrument that sees Christ and takes hold of him. That's all faith is. That's all it does. It's, it's grasping Christ, taking hold of Christ. Have you, have you done that, loved ones? This is how we have union with this great Savior. This is how we enjoy all, his, all, all, all the glories of his person and his work for our sakes, by embracing him by faith. Um, Sinclair Ferguson has an excellent book called The Whole Christ. In it, he writes this, When the benefits are seen as abstractable from the benefactor, that's Christ, the issue becomes, how can I get these benefits into my life? But when it's seen that Christ and his benefits are inseparable and that his benefits are not abstractable commodities, the question becomes, how do I get into Christ? Right? That's, that's the question of faith. That's what faith wants. Not to just, how do I get justification? How do I get sanctification? No, how do I get into Christ? That's where we are to look. As the Catechism tells us, we are to embrace Jesus Christ. Or there's an older confession, a Scots confession of 1560, which says this, by this faith we grasp Christ. That's what faith does. Jesus Christ is the sum and substance of our salvation. All the glories of salvation are found in him. And they are ours. They come to us in him. He's the bread of life. Take him and be satisfied. Calvin, again, we opened with a quote from Calvin. We'll end with another one. He writes this in his Institutes. It's a longer quote, but it's worth, uh, worth reading. He says, We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of Him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in His anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in His dominion. If purity, in His conception. If gentleness, it appears in His birth. For by his birth he was made like us in all respects, that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If we seek acquittal, in his condemnation. If remission of of the cursed, in his cross. If satisfaction, in his sacrifice. If purification, in his blood. If reconciliation, in his descent into hell. If mortification of the flesh, in his tomb. If newness of life, in his resurrection. If immortality, in the same, if inheritance of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment and the power given to him to judge. In short, such since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Let's pray. Lord, as sinners saved by grace, we continue to cry out for more grace and more of Christ. More of Him, our Savior, uh, sweeter and richer and deeper communion with our Savior. Let us not look anywhere else but to Him for salvation. And help us to see and to taste the riches of Your grace to us in Christ. And may we always be in Him, even as the branches in the tree. 
We ask it in His precious name. Amen.